There's nothing that's strictly a one-dimensional, two-dimensional, three or three-dimensional object or being. Is that everything exists in a high in a hyperdimensional reality, and that we only see part of it. And for us, that we experience a three-dimensional reality, but are actually part of a four-dimensional whole. Hello and welcome back to another Mind Matters show. Today we're going to be discussing a book that was written in 1884 by a schoolmaster, an English schoolmaster named Edwin Abbott Abbott. And the book is Flatland. And it's a book that we touched upon some time ago when our brand was The Truth Perspective. Uh, it was part of a show discussion on unlocking the secrets of consciousness, hyperdimensional attractors, and frog brains. So, yes, that was the title of it. And uh, that was a discussion of a book called uh, Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul, written by Peter Walling and Kenneth Hicks. So... As part of that discussion, we looked at the writings of Edwin Abbott Abbott and this book called Flatland, which is a short book that is at once a kind of cultural satire of Victorian England. It's also a mathematical inquiry, and it's a sci-fi novel. And I think most importantly, it's a kind of call towards reason and towards thinking outside of our expanded perceptions of space, of dimensions, of those constructs that we've been taught to think about and view our reality within. So... That's just a rough outline. Uh, the book really begins with an incredible, incredibly detailed description of the strata of the flatland society, where you have a hierarchy of individuals who are made up of different geometrical figures. So you have um, men who are squares. The protagonist of the story is a square. You have polygons and hexagons and isosceles triangles. And women are uh, needles, basically, kind of unidimensional. And there is a, a strict uh, hierarchy among these various geometrical figures that uh, suggest a lot of the social conditions of Victorian England at the time. And it's quite funny in places, but also uh, pretty serious in, in other places because one can sort of recognize the, the prejudices and the, uh, the, the oppression that may exist among different strata of society if, you're, if you can think about it in those terms. So it works on that level. And... I think one of the more important reasons for discussing the book today, as I was saying, is the, this kind of, um, uh, this limitation that many people or individuals, as uh, illustrated in the book, have in being able to view reality outside two-dimensional terms. So our protagonist is a square. He runs a household. He has a wife and children. He's got servants. And he's visited one day by a circle who ends up being a sphere. And this sphere is from the dimension of space. I don't think that's exactly how it's termed, but it's, a, it's, it's this higher dimensional area and the the sphere is visiting 
the square because of this uh, this time period every thousand years or every millennium uh, that there's this opportunity to be uh, to have this kind of message being brought down to flatland about the fact that there is a another dimension there is a, a 3d universe that the flatlanders have been kept largely ignorant of so there is a a lot of struggle on the part of Square to understand the message that Sphere has come down to explain to him and to impart to him uh, in the hopes that Square will become this kind of prophet for a new perception, a new reality. And that, that may be a good place to leave it off and, and jump off from. Mm -hmm. Well, like you said, it's a story with many dimensions. Uh, no pun intended, but the if we if we focus on the first just for a second on the the nature of the kind of social commentary or social satire, I thought it was interesting that when the book first came out uh, over 130 years ago, there were charges against Abbott for being sexist because, of course, in the story, like you said, the women are lines sharp sharp pointed lines. They don't have angles. They're not, uh, they're not triangles. They, they're kind of, in a sense, the lowest of the, um, the lowest of the shapes that live in Flatland. And um, he, of course, depicts them with all of the Victorian era, but not limited to, limited to that time or place kind of um, stereotypes of women. And he responded to that after the publication by saying, well, it actually was a satire. That That's how I intended it. I, I didn't intend to mm -hmm. argue for those positions. But the narrator himself, the square, is a product of his society. So square himself has those prejudices and stereotypes. Like throughout the description of the Flatland world, he is basically arguing for their social system, giving all the justifications for it and the reason why it is a, a great form of social order and... Um, basically arguing on behalf of the, the system, even though he is one of the enlightened ones that receives the message from above and the, the gospel of, the, of space, of the third dimension. <clears throat> so that's one aspect where you see the how Abbott constructs this world and injects... There's, there's no one-to-one -one ratio for all of the, the different features of Victorian society... Um, but he manages to inject them into this world in a way that's kind of plausible. So the more facets you have to your shape, the more angles you have, the more, the more edges you have, the higher your status, the higher your class, and the, the circles, or the ones that, closely, that, cl that come to approximate the closest to a circle, so they have um, uh, a very high number of angles, uh, like a, uh, a polygon with many sides to it, the closer you get to a circle, like the um, and to at least to be able to be called a circle, you become part of the, basically the priestly class, um, the closest to perfection. And the people on the lower end of the spectrum are these isosceles triangles, or the or the triangles with um, irregular angles to them. So they don't, they're not uh, they don't have two equal lengthed sides you know, to them. And these, I believe those ones were the criminal class, the, the low class. And there are various comments throughout the book on the, the nature of the criminal class and how you know, um, when you're born into that class, you're just going to be a criminal anyways. And uh, the, the, a very, a very almost Darwinian eugenicist mm -hmm. um, view of, of humanity and the, the, and, social interaction and class warfare and so the higher classes are always scheming and or, or socially manipulating and socially planning in order to quell any rebellions from below and there's so there's description of politics in there too and the the nature of social control the nature of um, state control and all of those things and so when you have this presentation of a specific society and like you said he was primarily modeling this on the Victorian era, you have this description of a of a society, and the kind of moral of the story 
is that there is a higher world, there is a higher perspective. And once that is, um, well, that, that comes to be imparted to him by this sphere, this three-dimensional being from, a, from the higher dimension that comes to him to try to explain. And at first, like you said, he, he doesn't understand, he can't understand, he ends up physically assaulting this, uh, this cross-section of the sphere as a circle that appears in his room one day and has to be physically pulled out of his two-dimensional space to be shown his world in order to finally get it. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of his life, he, he tries to remember that vision that he was given of being pulled out of space and then to impart it to others, you know, too, and ends up getting arrested and thrown in prison. And he writes Flatland from prison. Um, I mentioned the eugenicist as- aspect to it. There's, there's a lot of um, just kind of state murder in the in the story if you if you deviate from regularity you'll be executed and they have trials where um, for instance in the squares trial the everyone involved in the trial will then be executed afterwards in order so that they can't spread what they heard about the trial so it's a like you said it's it's a very dystopian kind of totalitarian system of of social control, it's in there, but yet we we see it from the perspective of someone who still believes in this system, and because it's just self-evident these truths that the polygons are smarter and more spiritually evolved and developed than the lower classes who have practically no ability to raise themselves. But in theory, they in theory they do, but in practice they don't. The, the classes are kept very rigid. So once there is this reception of a of a higher knowledge of the of the nature of reality the wider nature of reality forces square or any inhabitant of flatland to think outside the square mm-hmm. and to, to actually envision the box to, to be able to see the box and that puts the first part of the book in into perspective i think because i think what abbott was I think one of the goals that Abbott had, or one of the messages in this book, is that the it really is, in part, uh, just an allegory or a symbol for the the reception of a spiritual message. Um, I don't know if specifically he well he you know it was probably a specifically a Christian message, the receiving of the gospel and then preaching the gospel and then being persecuted because of it. It's a fairly standard storyline, but the the message that even at even the square doesn't fully get doesn't fully understand is that his entire society his entire self-conception and self-image is two-dimensional that the everything all of his social interactions all of his social um, mores and customs are all on a low level on a basic level and that there's much more to the world, much more to reality. And basically the truth, if he were to know it completely, would completely relativize that society, that understanding of reality, to the point where it is it itself is unreal, in a sense. The real, or the true, is the perspective that he had for that, that glimpse of a moment when the sphere raised him out of his two-dimensional life and showed him the third dimension. And that's really the state that most of us are in, or that all of us are in. You know, we are, we in our third, third dimensional reality with our third dimensional societies and cultures and customs are just as two-dimensional as the, as they are in Flatland. And we don't see it. You know, we always, we come up with justifications for for why our, well, specifically, maybe our culture is the best, our way of life is the best, things like that, and don't see that we really are the product of a bunch of average people. Every society is the product of a bunch of average people doing an average thing. That There is always a higher level. So I don't know if Abbott would have looked at another society or a future society, maybe 
in the last 130 years and say, oh, well, this is objectively better than my society that I was satirizing in Flatland. He may do so. You know, he might look at our world and say, oh, you know, it's so great that we've got rid of this, 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 and this. But that doesn't mean that we're that much better. We're, we're kind of, we're different, but we're the same at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because there is always a higher level and there will always be a perspective from which all human societies are two-dimensional. And that is in Flatland, the third dimension. So in, from our perspective, it would be a fourth-dimensional reality. And this is something that I think Square even proposes to the sphere, and the sphere rejects it. He's like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Right. You know, I live in space. There's nothing higher than space. Mm -hmm. And again, so <laughs> that shows that the same, the same applies on each level. So even in the third dimensional, in, even in the third dimension, this sphere can't comprehend that there might be four-dimensional space. Well, he he later recants a little bit, yeah, and and says, you know what, I I misspoke, and uh, occasionally even we get profits from the fourth-dimensional space, and we're struggling to understand this this higher area. But I wanted to get back to a point you made about what Abbott would think or experience had he lived today, because I think it's a good observation. And as you were mentioning that, Harrison, I was thinking about um, this recent war, this information and knowledge war that we're seeing regarding intelligent design. And I don't know how aware people are of the fact that there are publications out there that are calling for outright censorship of the science of the writing of and about intelligent design. And this is very interesting to me and, and I think is almost a perfect analogy with Flatland. There are scientists or people out there who call themselves scientists who are practicing um, what Chittick might call scientism uh, that is really pseudoscience that don't want us to be thinking about higher dimensional realities that might have had a hand in informing our, our reality. So that, that comes to mind. Um, and I wanted to say that it's, it's interesting also that, uh, that people would put Abbott under fire for his satire because England English literature had a fine tradition of satire. You had Jonathan Swift writing uh, a couple of hundred years prior to Abbott um, and, you know, putting out essays that were full of satirical information that drove the point home. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the best writers that we see on sot, uh, signs of the times is CJ Hopkins, whose articles about, contemporary fascistic thinking uh, are driven home by uh, some fantastic satire in a way that a more dry and straightforward article uh, doesn't always convey certain thoughts. Maybe to move on to some of the mathematical parts of the story, for those who either didn't listen to our show on the, conscious, on the consciousness book or haven't read Flatland or anything about the four dimensions, a bit of an a bit of an analogy from Flatland itself might be able to give a, an idea of what we mean when we talk of a fourth spatial dimension. So in Flatland, it's basically like a sheet of paper or the surface of a of a liquid. It's a flat surface, and everything that exists on that exists exists on that surface. So nothing has a third dimension to it. So it would be like as if the the the, the shapes that you draw on paper had their own existence. So they can't comprehend of a they can only comprehend two dimensions and can't comprehend stepping out of that third dimension. Now, when you take, when you have a sheet of paper and you have a sphere, when the sphere passes through that paper, as it does in Flatland, it first appears at a point, as a point, and then a small circle, and then the circle grows. And as it completely passes through, the circle then gets smaller and smaller until it disappears. So you have a cross section of a higher dimensional object, which appears as a two dimensional object. So two-dimensional 
shapes are cross-sections of a third-dimensional space, uh, our object. So an analogy in the third dimension would be if you would see a small point appear and then a sphere that's very tiny that gets larger and larger, you know, maybe a uh, beach ball, and then shrinks and shrinks and shrinks till it disappears again. So you'd have this sphere or this point appear from nowhere, grow, shrink, and then disappear. That would be a hypersphere entering three-dimensional space, passing through it, and then disappearing. Same thing with a cube. Um, a cube would be, um, or you can imagine any shape like that. Now, another way of representing uh, a hypercube, for instance, would be as a, um, to unfold it. So when you unfold the sides of a cube, you get that uh, cross-shaped shape, right? You, with a, you have one, two, three, four, five, six squares. You fold them all up, and you get a cube. A hypercube would be composed of cubes stacked on top of each other that you then fold together. You, can only, you have to fold them in hyperspace in the fourth dimension, and then you get, if you just search on, you can probably search on YouTube for visualization of a hypercube, and you, you can see the rotations of it, and it's like a, oftentimes one of the ways of looking at it is a cube, and then on the outside you have, basically they don't look like cubes, but they're connected to other six-sided figures, and then it can like rotate through itself, and you see it kind of undulating. And in the fourth dimension, each of those would be a perfect, um, a perfect cube. And I think the way it works is that each each corner of the cube is connected to a corner of the other cubes, and somehow that works in the fourth dimension, right? We can't visualize it in the third dimension very well. Well, we can kind of visualize it, but it's not geometrically accurate. So there are these mathematical shapes that exist abstractly, <clears throat> and a, a whole hyperspace that exists abstractly, at the very least for the mathematician who's doing the equations and working, doing mathematics in four dimensions. But the idea is that perhaps this is actually true, this, or an actual real space. This is what we got into um, in our show on the consciousness book, that what the, what those guys found is, and what they argued, is that brain activity, when graphed mathematically, is basically though that graphical representation is a cross section of a four dimensional shape or a higher dimensional shape. Um, read the book for the details because um, kind of need to work work through it in order to to have it all make sense. But what they basically argue is that consciousness is a hyperdimensional phenomenon. So consciousness is actually taking place in higher dimensions and then getting translated into third dimension through the, these cross sections of brain activity. It's basically being constructed or re, uh, like put together again or remembered in, in, the, in the brain activity, but that the consciousness itself is a hyperdimensional phenomenon. So there's a few different ideas to, to bring together here and a few uh, a bunch of possibilities as well. Um, one is that one of the implications that a lot of mathematicians derive from not only flatland but all these representations of the fourth dimension is that there is an aspect or a sense in which the fourth spatial dimension is time. Um, some disagree and say, well, no, time is its own dimension and fourth dimension is, the fourth spatial dimension is separate, but they're, but others say that they're integrally related in somehow. So just as those cross sections of the sphere show up as circles, that in our third dimension, any given point in time or slice of time is the cross-section of a hyperdimensional figure or, or shape. So your existence, if we just bring it down to the level of one being, your existence from conception to death, each moment in your life is a cross-section of a higher dimensional you that encompasses all of the, all of the yous that sequentially took place like an infinite number throughout your lifetime. And same could be said for the entire universe. The entire universe 
each slice of time is a cross-section of the hyperdimensional universe. I want to interrupt you, Harrison, because what you just said has a lot of implications for how we perceive reality. Uh, if, if these are slices, if, if any moment in time is but a, a, a slice of, or a two-dimensional or even a, a line version of our time, what, what are the implications for reality itself if it's not only the mind that has a connection to other dimensional realities, but our, our entire existence? Mm-hmm. Uh, it would seem to suggest that there is far more to us. And without, without getting too far into it, we've discussed reincar- reincarnation, the the possibility of afterlife existence, um, high strangeness, all of these other kind of otherworldly ideas that tend to get poo-pooed so automatically by scientists. So I think in the in the very acknowledgement of a fourth dimensional space or reality if we allow ourselves to consider the possibilities here, uh, and this is what, this is what the consciousness book is basically alluding to. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's what it's pointing to. Uh, then, you know, we can try and be as rigorous about it as possible. We don't want to go too far off into one direction or another and assume all things, but, but we can allow ourselves to be open to the possibility that there that the time as we experience it and understand it point a to point b is really just a construct that we've been inculcated with and and biologically uh sort of focused on given our our physicality but there's really just a lot more to it uh in theory and and i think that that creates an opening for entertaining at the very least you know where where our three-dimensional reality begins and and where a fourth one uh may start mm-hmm. well and that's w- one of the implications in a lot of these writings not just flatland is that there's no there's nothing that's strictly a one-dimensional two-dimensional three or three-dimensional object or being is that everything exists in a high in a hyperdimensional reality and that we only see part of it so there are no kind of sentient squares but there might be two-dimensional consciousnesses for example that exist in three dimensions but only experience two dimensions like a two-dimensional reality and for us that we experience a three-dimensional reality but are actually part of a four-dimensional whole it's so there wouldn't be these rigid divisions, everything is a more or less limited expression of a hyperdimensional whole. So, um, well, one of the books that also deals with this, I've got two books here. One is P.D. Uspensky's Tertium Organum, where he deals with a lot of the fourth dimensional stuff. Written in, uh, I think finished, he finished it in like 1915, 14, something like that. So it's about 100 years old. And then another book by Rudy Rucker called The Fourth Dimension, published in 1984, 100 years after Flatland. And Rucker himself was influenced by Flatland. He uh, really liked it as a kid and then wrote this book about the, all the mathematics and uh, implications. And it's been years since I read this book, but uh, I still recommend it. It's funny. It's got it's easy to read and it's got funny diagrams too, like pictures, uh, drawings, to exp- to show all of the points. Well, I, so I randomly flipped it open. Here is what I was talking about with a representation of the hypercube. Let me see if I can get that in there. Yeah, so there you go. You've got the central cube, and then all of those shapes coming out to the side are also perfect cubes, but that can't be re- can't be represented as perfect cubes in three dimensions, but uh, that's one representation of a hypercube. Um, So he goes through all of it and 
there are various excerpts of his own fictional continuation of Flatland with a square. So if you want to get into it, I'd recommend this one too. But I wanted to read something from Tertium Organum about the... Um, about our 3D reality being basically a slice or a cross-section of a higher dimension. So I'm going to read a page from chapter 5 of the book. So Spensky writes, Four-dimensional space, if we attempt to represent it to ourselves, will be the infinite repetition of our space, of our infinite three-dimensional sphere, just as a line is the infinite repetition of a point. A great deal of what has been said earlier will become much clearer for us if we take as our standpoint the view that the fourth dimension should be looked for in time. It will then become clear what is meant by saying that a four-dimensional body may be regarded as the trace of the movement in space of a three-dimensional body in a direction not contained within it or in it. The direction not contained in three-dimensional space in which every three-dimensional body moves is the direction of time. By existing, every three-dimensional body moves in time, as it were, and leaves its trace, or leaves the trace of its motion in the form of a time body, or a four-dimensional body. Because of the properties of our perceiving apparatus, we never see or sense this body. We only see its section, and this we call a three-dimensional body. Therefore, we are greatly mistaken in thinking that a three-dimensional body is something real. It is merely the projection of a four-dimensional body, its drawing, its image on our plane. A four-dimensional body is an infinite number of three-dimensional bodies. In other words, a four-dimensional body is an infinite number of moments of existence of a three-dimensional body, of its states and positions. The three-dimensional body which we see is only a figure on a cinema film, so to speak, one of a series of snapshots. Four-dimensional space, time, is actually the distance between the forms, states, and positions of one and the same body, and of different bodies, i.e. bodies which appear different to us. It separates those forms, states, and positions from one another, and it also binds each into some whole incomprehensible for us. This incomprehensible form, or whole, may be formed in time out of one physical body, or it may be formed out of different bodies. So that's how Uspensky represents it. Um, like I said, Rudy Rooker um, is one who argues that time is not equivalent to the fourth spatial dimension, as Uspensky seems to be arguing, that they're just uh, different ways of representing different dimensions. But I'm not, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure where I stand on the, the debate, but one of the implications of the fourth dimension as time is like Uspensky said, it's like your life is a film that plays itself out. And the way that I visualize that, which is a very um, deterministic model, is some, let's say you have a video file that you open in QuickTime or something. And you know how you can click on the slider and then move it forward and back. And the so you'll watch the video go forward and backwards. And it is this deterministic whole. So you've got, it, it is like a two-dimensional representation um, that is the entire time series of the life of whatever that is in that film. So you've got the beginning to the end. And you could create, hypothetically, a 3D film of a four-dimensional object and do the same thing. You've got the slider, so there's your conception. You can fast forward to your death, back, go backwards to you know, your first career, forward, back, and it's just, it's the same film played over and over again and you just cycle through it or rewind, fast forward. But that's a very deterministic view of the world. And that's one of the things that Uspensky deals with in one of those early chapters in Tertium Organum is this um, this question of free will and determinism. Um, I believe Tertium Organum was written before any of the real work done on quantum physics, and especially before it entered into the kind of popular imagination. But there, like Uspensky argues, there either determinism or total free will are both 
bad options. They're too, they're too extreme. Uh, the truth is somewhere in between both of them. That the world isn't a deterministic, um, how do the scientists call it, the physicists, a, uh, like a time cube or something, a block universe, that's what it's called. The block universe is like a cube, every cross section of which is a moment of time for the entire universe. And each moment of time is just stacked on top of one, one on top of the other. And you get this cube. That's just how they represent it for whatever reason. So you could just, you could go anywhere in space, which is the, anywhere on one of those cross sections. And then time is moving through that sphere. So you could trace an atom from the beginning the beginning of the time series through space through that cube to you know the end of the universe at the top or well that's again that's just the representation of it but spensky and you know me too would say well no that's that doesn't seem to capture the nature of reality it's on some of the shows that we did um, on philosophy some of which i think were in some of the shows we devoted to jordan peterson's ideas is that that doesn't see the what seem to be the way the universe is structured. The universe seems to be structured with an element of free will or an element of accident or an element of the possibility of novelty being introduced to the universe so that the future can't be completely predicted. And Spensky says something similar in Tertium Organum. He says that you can't totally predict the future, but what you can do is predict based on complete knowledge of everything at the present, the way things will go without the introduction of some novelty of something new so we are very material or we are very deterministic in our and mechanical in our lives and the universe is the same way and so we can predict a probable future and we can predict possible futures but at every moment there's the possibility of something new being introduced mm -hmm. it might be a, it might be some form of inspiration something that changes our the action we take where we would have we would have ordinarily let's say gone in this direction but something new comes in to make us choose that direction which couldn't have been predicted beforehand of course you could predict if this novel thing comes in then this person might change and do this instead of that but you can't predict the novelty you can't say oh well this novelty will come here that there there is an element of unpredictability in the universe and a, a space for um, for free will for changing the outcome, but things still things still progress causally. Um, you can make predictions based on what you know, but there's always the room for something you don't know, something new coming in. So that thinking about that over these last few days with Flatman Flatland. Um, I was wondering about that because the universe doesn't seem to be a block universe. It doesn't seem to be set in the future doesn't seem to be set in stone. There seems to be the possibility for new actions and novelty and unpredictable things happening. So how does this how might this be represented in this fourth spatial dimension? What would a hyper human being look like if the human life is a cross section of um, like the time body, as P.D. Uspensky was putting it. it. It wouldn't be that there's just me as a zygote and then my dead body and everything that happens in between is just the inevitable progression of what will happen. So it's not just like a, a, th a 3D... Um, M, uh, a 3D... What's a file format? Like MP4 mm -hmm. you know, file. There's something more to it. The way that... I kind of see it at this point, at least is that it's more like the fourth dimension is there's a, an, an aspect of the simultaneity of all of those time periods, all those slices, right. Mm -hmm. But also a simultaneity of all of the possibilities. Mm -hmm. So here's the things, here's the way things will go for this body if these things happen and here are all the ways that things might go if this happens and this and this and this so not only do you just have that one life all those cross sections of the one life that you will have lived when you die but all of the possibilities that might have been or that might still be if you're not dead and that all of those possibilities form like a a time body a possibility body 
that is, and who knows, maybe if, if any of this is true to any degree, maybe this is an even higher dimensional aspect, you know, that, that isn't strictly limited to the fourth dimension. Maybe it's a fifth or sixth dimensional thing, but that there, that there are, that there is a whole body of all of the possibilities for any individual, um, in this case, human being more than just that one life that you will live. Maybe that one life that you will live is the dominant thread in this web of possibilities. And maybe, and maybe that's the, the life you live. And maybe there were all of these possibilities that you could have done, but for whatever reason, you never, you never achieved it. And maybe if we look into Flatland, maybe that's the life that all of these Flatlanders are living. It's that, that, that one possible life that is just the, the easy life, the, the, the path of least resistance that they take. Um, if nothing new happens, then this is the life you live. And that's the life they live because nothing new happened. And more, probably more accurately, they didn't allow anything new to come in because of their prejudices, because of their closely held beliefs that they won't, that they won't let go to, that they don't let go to in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're so identified with those aspects of themselves, their self-image, their image of their society and their place in that society, that they don't let the things in that would let them break out of that MP4 file and live another one. Mm-hmm. where maybe they experience they, they get to experience that glimpse of the third dimension. Mm-hmm. So at least that's the way I'm looking at it at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to, to think about. And, you know, it's something that was really uh, on the minds of a lot of very, very intelligent writers and authors like P.D. Ospensky and Abbott and, and several others uh, back in the late 19th century and early, uh, early, very early 20th century. And it was, it's kind of a shame that it, that movement towards um, hypothesizing that a lot of the inexplicable things uh, about human existence that are objectively verifiable that do happen, you know, the crazy stuff that does happen, trying to find a place for that somewhere in the, in the universe using, you know, mathematics and science and kind of trying to come up with ways to understand what it means to have more dimensions than what you are consciously able to experience. And Abbott did a really good job of showing the limitations of that conscious experience um, of only, you know, two dimensions for these flatland beings and how the universe would look to them um, compared to the universe of space, spaceland and the spheres and us three-dimensional beings that they couldn't, there's no possible way they, you know, you could understand it. It's just something that's so far outside of your, your experience, what you're capable of thinking and also what you assume is real and what you assume can exist. And, you know, the supreme, for the supreme crime of, of um, disobeying what is supremely assumed by all, mm-hmm. <laughs> by all of your fellow two-dimensional beings, the square ends up in, in jail, mm-hmm. and which is funny because throughout the whole story, he's, he's such a square. You know, yeah. he's such an authoritarian <laughs> follower. We have all of these dimensions and the, everything that goes along with the dimensions. You know, if you've, you've got uh, enough um, angles, then you're, you know, you're some supreme guy super guy and then if you're not then you're like a lower cast isosceles triangle type thing but in the at the end of the day is you know he he accepts the truth and then he feels like it's his duty to try and inform his his grandson and then you know and then pretty soon he ends up in in jail and imprisoned and it's fairly you know that's the, I like that analogy um if, especially for yeah, just these the the large amount of people out there who who see something, who who see that there's something um, amiss, and that it seems like there's there's something inexplicable happening um, in the minds of people in world global politics and this and that that can't be explained by just recourse to um, previous thought, old stale thought, logic, anything like that. That there's something much higher. 
uh, happening and that it's uh, that we're kind of at the mercy of it for whatever for whatever reason you know it's mm-hmm. um I, and that's why I'm, I'm really glad that we read that book and that i hope that more listeners uh can get out there and, and find some yeah. of this material themselves because it is a it's an exercise in understanding limitations and the pain of trying to understand the limitations of those below us and um, you know the and the limita- and yeah and our own limitations and it's kind of seeing like yeah yeah we do we kind of behave like we uh, like we have the similar mental prison that the flatlanders do and you know obviously it's just a story and it's just an analogy and i had a great professor who she told me that all analogies limp you know there's they're never going to be quite perfect but when you look at it um in terms of what's just going on in in our daily lives and what's been happening throughout history i mean you know there's how many countless people have said there's there's something (laughs) there's something uh something terribly amiss with what we and that's where satire comes into play right is it's it's just satirizes our stale assumptions about the world and now more than ever we need more you know um, satirical glimpse at the the stupidity of so many of our assumptions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the struggle of the square, even as the the sphere was explaining things to him, and his railing against all of uh, the sphere's explanations as to how there could be this three dimensional space, uh, is is explained with a lot of sympathy in in some ways. I think. And it's interesting that in some ways Square was also in the position of Sphere by visiting the lower dimensions in his dreams and trying to convey to uh, this, I think it was Lineland and Pointland, these two even lower dimensions, that there was in fact a flatland or uh, in, in the best way that he could explain it. And there's a wonderful description of how the king um, or president of Pointland was completely living within his own reality and couldn't possibly allow for any other explanation except for those that he had given himself. And you just carry this, this analogy one step further, one step further. And so you're seeing how this type of narrow thinking exists on all of these levels until, as we mentioned earlier, um, Square says, well, if there is a a third dimension of space, then there must be a fourth dimension of space. And he, he, it's as though his perceptions have been completely blown open. And it's interesting also that Abbott uh, has additional visitations by sphere and of the square's visitations to the lower levels through his dreams, which is a suggestion that his consciousness is doing other things, is going to other places or um, or areas. Uh, and the suggestion is that there is something more to consciousness um, and learning that exists uh, when we dream and when we're not in our conscious state necessarily. But um, I did want to get back to that idea that, uh, you know, we're, there is a, a, a thought police um, regarding these areas of pursuit that, um, that we've, and this has been brought up on the show previously with scientists such as, um, Rupert Sheldrake, uh, most recently, and the large numbers of um, uh, articles and things that have been put out there to squelch his ideas of just how broad consciousness can be. Uh, Wilhelm Reich in the 30s and 40s, I mean, you you had governmental organizations persecuting him because of his, his studies into consciousness and technology that suggested other other somethings <laughs> otherness <laughs> i mean it was just uh he, he he was limited and there are all sorts of stories there are 
uh, in the fields of medicine, um, there are ideas that are that are being uh, suppressed that we're I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Uh, so the the this this oppressive um, uh, kind of police state existence that's exemplified by the president in in Flatland, who not only throws the uh, the square into prison for for trying to share some of these ideas, but even throws people into prison, like you're saying earlier, Harrison, who are in the court witnessing and listening to the the ideas they can't be allowed to uh, continue on with the knowledge that there may be another possibility to the reality that they exist within Mm -hmm. there are just a few final ideas i want to try to formulate one is that it seems this dimensional way of looking at things has resonance with the idea that you can only see really your own level of consciousness uh, or your own dimensional level and then and those below but what is below can't see can't comprehend what is higher we can't really comprehend or see from a fourth dimensional perspective but we can see and we can comprehend and um think about second dimension or one dimension it's easy and this relates to something else. Now, I, I can't remember. Do you do you remember in Flatland, you guys? There was uh, when he's encountering the sphere. There's talk about his like his inside. Um, sphere is trying to get him to understand that there is another direction, neither north nor south, but up, and he can't figure out what up is. I just I can't remember what the connection with inside was. Do you guys remember? Okay, well, because I th- I think it had something to do with. Well, first, Sphere said. Oh well, let me demonstrate for you. I'll, I, I will touch your insides, and um, Square is like, well, that's impossible. You can't touch my insides. You're outside of me, right? And so he goes above, and then you know, plays with his insides, and he feels this, you know, sharp pain in his stomach. Mm-hmm. Says, oh my God, what are you doing? But there was this connection with what was on the on the inside because oh, I think it was in his first encounter before he saw sphere is that he felt like a presence like there was something else in the room and he felt it on his inside and the inside was how he felt the like the presence of this higher dimensional being and that combined with this idea of another direction because what is neither left right forward back or up and down what is the other direction for us three-dimensional beings well, we do have a, a word for it. We do we do, because we use directional we use directional words in a kind of symbolic way when we say something is higher. We don't necessarily we don't mean that it's higher in the sky, higher above us. We don't mean that you look up and there that's what we're talking about. Higher is a it means something else. There's it's, it has an inner meaning. So. I think there's a probably a way of putting all these ideas together that the that the fourth dimension the other direction for us you know for beings with a certain degree of consciousness that that is experienced first of all inside it's an inner direction when you when something happens inside you inside your consciousness that is the direction of the fourth dimension for us um it's not it's not just forward in time or back in time. There's an inner dimension. And that is, and there's a scale of consciousness too, of higher and lower. And that might be a representation of, again, something dimensional going on. Because when we talked about the consciousness book by Walling and Hicks, they, as they represented consciousness in these brainwaves, there were levels of dimensionality to their analysis so a low level of consciousness was a low had a a low dimensional number and as the state of consciousness raised you had a higher level a higher number higher dimensionality of consciousness so there there might be a an integral important link between states and levels of consciousness and dimensional numbers 
Like a higher dimensional number is representative of a higher degree of consciousness. So there, if there is a growth in fourth dimension, that might be equivalent to like spiritual growth or the growth of consciousness, that what's actually growing is a fourth dimensional body. And again, this would be, this would be that novel road taken by the fourth dimensional whole, not the, the road less traveled, you could say, not the ingrained um, in, uh, groove of a, you know, of a trench that we're stuck in that's just the, the path of least resistance followed. You, know, you can imagine a, a pebble or a ball rolling through a, a groove. It's stuck there because that's the path of least resistance. It can't jump out of the groove to find another groove, maybe, or to form another groove, just because it's easy. It's just following gravity. And if it does step out, that might be representative of a growth in consciousness, an inner growth, an inner growth that is higher, not higher in terms of, in terms of altitude, but higher in terms of the fourth direction, the fourth dimension. Mm-hmm. So an inner upward growth that isn't literally up. Um, just as for the first square, his development would be up, but not forward or back or left to right, but a, a different up, um, not north or south. So I just wanted to throw those ideas out there mm-hmm. that there that there seems there could be a connection between all of those all of those ideas and all those ways of looking at things that the that real growth is inner growth and that might be hyperdimensional growth. And to relate this to our last show, we were talking about the need for a kind of super intelligence to to coordinate um the progressive evolution of life itself and the totality of life and what could be the what could that intelligence be well if consciousness and intelligence which might be related in some way are dimensional that a hyper uh, an intelligence that is higher than our own if the things that we've been saying are true must be hyperdimensional um if the things we're saying about consciousness and its relation to um, two dimensions is true, then a hyperintelligence would be a hyperdimensional intelligence, mm-hmm. something at either the level of the of a, a fully self-conscious fourth-dimensional being, or fifth, or sixth, or whatever, however far it goes. That with that level of intelligence, just like the sphere can look down on flatland and see the entirety of flatland and have um, a much greater breadth and depth of knowledge about flatland that the individuals themselves can't have. They can see it all in an instant. Whereas Square himself can only be aware of his tiny little life at one given time. He can learn about other things, but the sphere can just view it all happening at the same time. Maybe there's an equivalent from fourth to third that an um, expanded field of vision um, combined with a, a vastly superior intellect, um, the ability to forecast, to predict, to see how things will, will work together or won't work together on a level that is just beyond our ability to conceive of. We can see the, the fruits of it. We can see it working out and kind of marvel at the complexity of it. But just as we can't see just as you know, something on its own level can't, can't see higher than itself, only lower than itself, we can only kind of guess and see the fingerprints. We can see the, um, the hints, the hints and like the cross section maybe. And that's about it. But well, as you were saying that, I wondered if, you know, for those who are naturally open to the idea of higher dimensions, that there hasn't been some kind of interpenetration or experience of something that falls so far outside of the way that normal reality gets explained to us, uh, whether it be synchronicities or deja vu or, um, or strange dreams or any number of things that are irrational by the, um, by the agreed upon, uh, version of reality that, that we've been brought up thinking that there are these, uh, 
there are these interpenetrations or these um, this this kind of connection or or touching of of something higher or just plainly different that is so inexplicable that once once that contact has been made then the um, then the opening and the awareness of things that may or may not be connected to it uh, and the explanations um, like the fourth dimension like tertium organum and then and, and any number of other texts that we've been looking at and discussing there is this you know we we are quite willing to be the heretics in our in our flatland and and allow for a greater acknowledgement of of a, a broader way of thinking about things and understanding ourselves within a wider um, reality so well if that's everything guys we're gonna say goodbye we are glad you joined us today and we look forward to seeing you again next week thanks for listening